This podcast is brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. Thanks for listening. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, which is truth. You know where we have been in the past week. You know uh, what what we are thinking and how we are feeling at the moment. But we pray, God, right now that your Holy Spirit help us to turn our focus on your word so that we may hear your truth and that we can be strengthened to respond rightly to you. We pray all this for your glory. Amen. I'd like to read to you something that I was reading in my family this week. It's taken from Window of the World and Operation World Prayer Resource. Let me read this to you. When he was a little boy, Romulo Sane looked after his family's sheep. After he started to follow Jesus, his favorite verses were about Jesus the Good Shepherd. Romulo became a Christian leader and spent his life helping his Quechua people. He loved to tell them about the Good Shepherd. He knew how important it was for his people to have the Bible in their own language. So he worked with others to translate it into the Quechua dialects. Romulo often visited Christians in remote mountain villages to tell them more about Jesus. One day, as he returned from a visit, Romulo was murdered by a rebel group that opposed his Christian work. Romulo was a good shepherd who gave his life for his sheep, the Quechua's. This is actually a familiar story that you and I will read often if you do read prayer letters and resources about Christians around the world. Christians who face rejection by people who took offense at the good news of Jesus. For centuries and around the world, this is the reality for Christians when we choose to follow Jesus. It is a reality that the Lord Jesus himself taught those who followed him. Now the good news of Jesus will polarize the world. Some who are longing for the kingdom of heaven will receive it like a good soil and will flourish with the good news. Others who hear it will choose to reject it. And in between, there will be those who seem to choose it, but over time rejects Jesus. They reject Jesus' words when the truth becomes more than just an intellectual discussion, but a personal confrontation. As we step into Mark chapter 6, we are given a front row seat to Jesus' lessons for his disciples on the rejection of the good news of God. Now, last week, if you are here with us, we took a journey through the four realms that only God has control over. We witnessed in the natural realm how fishermen who learned their traits from their fathers, they were terrified when faced with a death-inducing storm in the sea. And it was Jesus and Jesus alone who had the authority to calm the storm. We journeyed and we saw In the spiritual realm, how a man in deep spiritual bondage was tightly bound to hell. It was Jesus, the stronger man, who rescued him from the clutches of Satan 
and brought him into the kingdom of God. We witnessed in the physical realm how a helpless woman who bled day after day for 12 years and she was as good as dead. But Jesus came and healed her and gave her peace. And finally, last week, we stepped into one foot into the realms of death itself where we witnessed the grieving of a religious but helpless father whose daughter has died until Jesus came and snatched her back from death. You know, the authority and the words of Jesus were recognized by the natural, spiritual, physical realm by death itself. And you and I will expect that in his time and in ours, people who come to know Jesus would know and fear and love him. But as Jesus steps back into the ordinary in today's chapter, that is not what happened. So I would like to invite you to open up to Mark chapter 6. I'll read from verse 1 onwards for us. Mark chapter 6, verse 1. Jesus left there, that is the house of Jairus, and went to his hometown accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things, they asked. What is this wisdom that has been given him? What are these remarkable miracles he is performing? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son, the brother of James, Joseph, Judas and Simon? And his sisters here with us? And they loved him. No, that's not what your Bible says, isn't it? After they were amazed, now they took offense at him. The last time we read of Jesus' family in chapter 3, they wanted to take charge of Jesus because they say he's out of his mind. Now as Jesus returned to his hometown, he wanted to teach God's word to the people as he always did. No, Jesus didn't come back to look impressive after becoming famous, but rather to bring the message of repentance and salvation to his own people. Now, if anyone were to receive Jesus as God's Messiah, it should have been his own Jewish people. People who had the amazing privilege of hearing Jesus for three decades, who have seen his life and recognized there's no one like Jesus. And so on this first Saturday, when he arrived at his hometown back in Nazareth, verse 1 tells us he went into the synagogue to teach. Now as he goes in and he starts to teach, initially there was this buzz around Jesus. Now people were amazed at his teaching. In fact, his fame has spread fine. Why? By verse 14 you know that even King Herod in the palace has heard about the name of Jesus. You know, they were initially amazed with his words and his works. They were amazed to hear his wisdom as his mouth opens and the rumors of his wonders. But that amazement quickly turned very sour. As they sunk in, some of them realized that perhaps Jesus was just another village boy that they knew. Jesus was that carpenter who thought too much of himself. He left his father's chisel and went to compete with the teachers of the law. And, and who is he to now teach and correct us? No, we are his father's contemporaries. 
Jesus had no special lineage. He was just that woman, Mary's son. Now Mark is silent about why it's used here, but you can imagine. Perhaps Joseph is dead. So you don't say this is Joseph's son because that's the way you speak about people. You say this is that widow's son. Or perhaps, worse still, they had gossip behind the family's back all this time. Now speaking of his supposed illegitimate birth, who's the real father anyway? We don't know why, but Mark writes, they said, this is that woman's son. And though we know his siblings all our life and none were any more special than our own kids. Now at the end of the day, their pride and their prejudice would not allow them to receive the gospel seed that could save them and bring them into the kingdom of God. They were like the hard path in the parable of the sower where the, the word of Jesus just laid waste on the ground and soon snatched away. No, their amazement didn't lead to repentance and, and faith, but rather to take offense at Jesus. And verse 6, Jesus was amazed as well at their lack of faith. No, familiarity breeds contempt. Or quoting John Bloom, he was a co-founder of Desiring God Ministry, he says this, he says, familiarity breeds contempt when pride rules the heart. Let me say that again. Familiarity breeds contempt when pride rules the heart. Now, when Jesus speaks and his words come forth, the familiarity and the pride rejects him and his word. There must be more pain for Jesus than we can imagine. Mark doesn't write it here. But can you imagine Jesus speaking to people he knew for 30 years? Now, verse 4, he says, A prophet is not without honor except in his own town, among his relatives and in his own home. Now, how incredible that those who rub shoulders with the Son of God for three decades were blinded by pride and they could not accept truth. Now, dear brothers and sisters, this brings us a very sobering reminder. A reminder that even though Jesus' teachings are amazing, compelling, and true, not everyone will accept truths at the end of the day. People may use preconceived worldviews to reject truths, or they may be happy to have some intellectual debates and conversation until it gets personal and demands repentance and submission to God. No, it happens in Jesus' time. It continues to happen in our time. No, we may hear questions that people ask. They are really rhetorical statements. Questions like this. If God exists, why can't I see Him? How can God come as a lowly human in our world? Do, do you mean that if I don't believe in Jesus, I'll be judged by God? What's the big deal about a little bit of sin and pleasure? You know, on average, I'm above, I'm above the average morally. And, and what's, what's this thing about Jesus? I know about Jesus. I grew up 
going to a Christian or Catholic school? And isn't the Bible too outdated in our progressive world? Now, I just want to put it clear. Sometimes these are genuine questions that people need answers to because it's blocking them from understanding. But there will be times these are not just questions. They are rhetorical statements. After hearing the teachings of Jesus, what did his relatives say? They ask a question, but it's not really a question, isn't it? They say, isn't this the carpenter? So the rejection of Jesus by his own people reminds us that there will be rejection of Jesus in this world. Even if truth is spoken, even if miracles are done, even if you can prove historically that a man did die and did rise from the dead, it may not be enough for some people. Now there's an interesting note there in verse 5. Look at it. It says this. It says, Jesus could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. Now what does that mean? It couldn't mean that Jesus was unable to exercise his power. We have just seen Jesus come a storm in the absence of faith. So what does this mean? I don't think it means Jesus' inability to exercise power. Rather, it is the people's refusal to turn to him and to seek after him. Because if we observe the miracles of Jesus in the Gospels, it is always done out of compassion for the people who cry out to him. Now, even then, as Jesus showed compassion, he tells his disciples, let's go somewhere else so that I can preach there also. Because the greatest power that Jesus wants to exercise is not just a temporal healing and the people end up dead after some years, but to proclaim through his word to bring people who are bound for hell into eternity in heaven. Jesus wants to exercise the power of salvation by bringing them to himself. As a pastor, Richard Cookin, he rightly pointed out, let me quote him. Richard Cookin says this, he said, when God took on flesh, it was not to disrupt the normal laws of the world, but to bring the gospel of salvation. Jesus didn't want to come here to get people who just want stuff. Jesus came for people who want a king who wants the Lord himself. And so you wouldn't find Jesus in his time advertising healing rallies in the hope that some will come for him. But because of the hardness of their heart, Jesus didn't do many miracles. Only a few pastoral visits to heal a few sick people. Well, that is great as well, isn't it? Who, who else can just touch someone and heal them? But it was put in a way that he didn't do much. He couldn't do much because people didn't want him. Now as the journey continues, we come to the second section in 6b. We come to a surprising training program that Jesus gave to his 12 apostles. They were obviously still work in progress from what we saw from the previous chapter. But here it is. After they have witnessed the rejection of Jesus in Nazareth, Jesus now calls to them. He imparts to them power over impure spirit. 
and then instruct them to imitate him. They've seen enough. Now is their time to imitate him, to go to villages, to number one, preach, number two, cast out demons, number three, to heal the sick. Now perhaps from custom and wisdom, they are meant to go in pairs. Now two can help to establish testimonies. They can also support each other in this mission. Now if I'm freezing cold in a mission, if, if, um, Richmond is next to me. I think it warms me out a little bit. It's good to have someone with you. When you are frightened of the unknown, it's good to have someone there to encourage you to be courageous and faithful. Because indeed, they will encounter dark forces, but Jesus' authority would be sufficient. They would face trouble and needy people, but Jesus would help them to show compassion. And above all, they would go out and give the most precious gift that Jesus wants people to have. The good news that the kingdom of God has come and the people are to, verse 12, repent of their sins. The apostles, they had to learn to trust Jesus as they go forth in this mission training. They were not to be dependent on their own resources, but on the words of Jesus, the hospitality of God's people. Jesus told them, you are not to bring food or extra shirt. You are to stay in the first house that you are welcome to. No, it could well be the poor person, the poorest person in the village. But because of Jesus' name and the words about Jesus, that he says, come in and stay with me. No, in, in my one small room with my three kids and my wife. He says, and you, Jesus tell the disciples, you are not to seek after a, a, a lodging or a meal upgrade. Because as you go along and you do miracles, the town chief or the businessman might say, hey, why don't you come and stay with me? And looking at that, you know, bugs infested first house and, and that place with a swimming pool, you are tempted to go. And say, Jesus says, no, you are not to go. You are to stay in the first house that welcomes you. Because if you do, first of all, you dishonor the first host who receive you because of me. And second, you dishonor the gospel you are proclaiming. And third, it distracts you totally. So going in pairs would surely have been a protection against such temptation, especially if your buddy is Judas Iscariot. As Jesus sent them, Jesus also gave them a sober reality. That as they go forth, they would face rejection when proclaiming the gospel. Look at verse 11. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, leave that place and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. What their sin happened to Jesus would also happen to them. There will be some who will receive them and believe the good news, but there will be others who want them out of their premises. Now as you listen to, to shake dust off their feet, it, it, it doesn't make much sense in our time. You know, when I was in Australia, the first week I was there, people wear shoes when they get into the house. And then I see people don't wear shoes when they go to the shopping centers. Or, or the NTUCs of the earth. Say, how, how does that work? So shaking your feet, the dust off your feet doesn't make sense for us. But it totally do dust uh, when 
the Jews here said, because this is the cultural practice of the Jews. If they are in the land and they leave the Jewish land into Gentile places, when they come back, they have the practice of shaking the dust before entering their land because they do not want to bring impurities into the Holy Land. So when Jesus says to his disciples, shake the dust off your sandals in a Jewish land, he's saying to the people when they reject the message of Jesus Christ, to God he sees that they are gen- spiritually spiritual Gentiles and they are not in God's promised land. The people are meant to understand that. And so it turns out that God's truth does not only save, it also brings judgment to those who reject it. Remember the parable of the sower that Pastor Andrew uh, preached earlier on in chapter 4. No, some would accept the words of Jesus, some will reject the words of Jesus, still some would seem to accept, but only to reject it later when persecution and temptations comes along. Now the followers are given front row seats to witness the rejection of Jesus by his own people so that they will not be discouraged when they are rejected because of Jesus. As Christians, you and I, we may feel inadequate to tell others about the good news. You know what? Join the gang. So did the apostles. But our Lord knows that we are work in progress. But yet, He still gives us the most precious gift. The gift of the gospel and the commission like theirs to proclaim it to the world. You know, like the apostles, we are on the job training to depend on God in our calling rather than to find security in gaining resources. Now, along the way, we are reminded and we are to remind each other of our Lord's instruction. We are not to be weighed down by discontentment or be distracted by opportunities for greater comforts in this short, short journey in life. Now, it should come as no surprise to us then that God may not always answer our prayer and request for more resources for security, even for health. He may not give it to us. Lest we think that heaven is now and we forget we are still on a journey to the true heaven. No, instead we should be strengthened by the words of our Lord which he gave to Paul when Paul pleaded with him. The Lord said to Paul, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your witness, 2 Corinthians 12. Now, as Jesus calls us to trust that His name and the gospel has authority, we are meant to trust that with our lives, that the authority of the gospel in the gospel is able to set people bound, not for temporal death, but for eternal death, and release them to be in the kingdom of God. No, there is this special place of humility that the gospel plays in you and me if you're a Christian. There's this special place of humility for us. Because on one hand, we have a gospel that is so powerful that hell will shudder. But on the other hand, we have a body that is so vulnerable that we are truly depending 
on God to sustain. It's a special place that Christians are meant to be in. And perhaps it is God's gift for us at times that we are weak. So even today as we go about our daily work, you know, Christians, we are not promised, God didn't promise all Christians we protected against coronavirus. But nevertheless, we are called to remember the voice and the words of our Lord. I want to read to you an article written by a Chinese Christian. In fact, it's a few weeks back, titled Wuhan Virus, What is Like Living in a Ghost Town in Fear. Someone sent it out. I want to share this with you. I'll just quote parts of it. I didn't put it there because you'll be reading. So I will read so that you can listen. So let me quote the writer. The writer says this. The gospel that Jesus Christ proclaimed was about the salvation of our souls. As sinners, we are prone to pay more attention to our flesh. I've realized that since the news of the epidemic broke, I've begun paying more attention to the notification on my phone, constantly refreshing the pages for more and more updates. Why did I spend my time praying more and meditating on God's word instead? It goes on. We ought to pray for the souls of Wuhan and the lost souls of all in China. Finding a cure for the virus is ideal, but it only solves the physical suffering. Shouldn't we also be concerned and pray for those who have not yet come to know the true gospel, to gain true life, and be spared from eternal suffering? End of quote. The compassion of God brought Jesus from heaven to a diseased world like ours because he loved us. The same compassion Jesus caused followers to bring his good news to our broken world so that more will be saved. Now, brothers and sisters, friends, why is this account written and kept for us? So that we recognize the reality that there will be rejection of the gospel, but go anyway. And how are we to go? We are to depend on the words and the power of Jesus. Not though we are like jars of clay, but we are given this gospel treasure that will reveal God's all-surpassing power. Perhaps during this time of uncertainty, where everyone gets stressed and fearful, rather than becoming suspicious of other people, perhaps we can offer to pray for our colleagues, our families, even the foreign workers who must be afraid as well, whose families are not here, but they have to work and carry on. Perhaps we should continue to pray more rather than to fear more and to speak more about Jesus so that they may know God's peace, whatever the circumstances, so that we will know God's peace wherever we are next week this time. And if people are willing to also share the good news, there is a king who has eternal hope and an eternal kingdom of heaven prepared for everyone where there will be no virus, there's no fear, there's no death. But only the creator himself will give us good things. Will we do that? Will we pray more for people this week? As we flip our handphones and read and get worried, should we take the same amount of time to pray? 
so that we will be strengthened. Will we speak more about Jesus? Now finally, to drive home the cause of discipleship, the author Mark, he sandwiched the death of John the Baptist between the going out and the coming back of the 12 missionaries. No, they go out and he stuck this right in the middle before they come back. And this is what Mark writes for us. Turn with me to verse 14. King Herod heard about this, for Jesus' name had become well known. Now some are saying, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Others said, he is Elijah. And still others claim, he is a prophet like one of the prophets of long ago. But when Herod heard this, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised from the dead. Now by now, the fame of Jesus has spread far and wide, even into the palace of King Herod. He even heard of all sorts of rumors. Most of them are fake news. Yet the rumor Herod Antipas clung on to was this. He really believed Jesus was the resurrected John, whom he has beheaded, whose head is with his wife at the moment. Now, evidently, Mark, who sandwiched Jesus, John's death after the rejection of Jesus and between the apostles' mission, are meant to capture two parallels for us. See if you can catch it. There are two parallels here. First of all, Mark wants us to recognize there really is a cause to following Jesus, real cause to proclaiming the message of repentance in a world that competes God's rule with our own desires and agenda. There's always in a clash. There is a real cost to speak about Jesus. And so Mark sandwiched the murder of John, this place, between their going out and coming back. The second parallel is this John who previously foreshadowed Jesus as the great king from God. He now foreshadowed Jesus' death as well, as his own head is being chopped off by the human king. We are getting ready to know that so were Jesus because King Herod Antipas, who was restless about John's death, he will eventually be a good friend of Pilate, who will do exactly the same thing. He will kill the righteous Jesus. Now, if you're a curious reader, you might actually ask this, but why did Mark still continue verse 17 to 29 when he had already summarized in verse 16? Because Mark is such a succinct writer. He, he seldom explains a lot of things you're meant to have understood. But here he expands this long section of what he already summarized in verse 16. Why does he do that? I want us to consider this together. So look with me to verse 16 onwards. I'll read it for us. Verse 16. When Herod heard this, he said, John whom I beheaded has been raised from the dead. For Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested. And he had him bound and put in prison. He did this because of Herodias, his brother, Philip's wife, whom he had married. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him. But she was not able to, because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. Now, the family tree of Herod 
was complicated. Because if you read a Bible, you see Herod here and there. There are actually four different Herods in your New Testament, at least. Okay? If you didn't know, ask your uh, youth leader. I'm sure they will explain it to you. No, there was the Herod the Great. He wanted Jesus' date when he heard that a king prophesied has been born in Bethlehem. But he didn't make it. Herod died first. And his kingdom was divided among his sons. Then he had one son by the name Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas, who ruled over Galilee and Persia. Then there was another son, Herod Philip. He ruled over the southwest, which is the present day Syria. So Philip, Philip married Herodias, who was their niece. But when Herod Antipas, who was already married, he came over, he decided, he said, woo, decided to divorce his own wife and take Philip's wife, Herodias, to be his new wife. You know, the Herods are very complicated in their family relationships. And just for your interest, history actually tells us that Antipas divorce of his first wife to marry Herodias would be part of his downfall, according to history. Because he divorced the daughter of the king of Nabitia, east of the Dead Sea. So his ex-father-in-law eventually took vengeance. AD 36, he had a crushing defeat on Antipas. In fact, the first century historian Josephus, he later commented this event this way. This is from his historical book, Antiquities 18, 116-117. Let me read what uh, the historian says. This is not in the Bible, this is just history, but listen to this. Now, some of the Jews thought that the destruction of Herod's army came from God, and that very justly as a punishment of what he did against John, that was called the Baptist. For Herod slew him, who was a good man. Josephus, Antiquity 18, 116, Now, there are very interesting accounts about John's death, Herod's fall in, his first, in, in the first century history books. But for the gospel writer Mark, he doesn't want you to go and think much about what happened to Antipas. He's concerned for us to know what happens to John. Because John the Baptist, in calling Herod Antipas to repent of his sins, was being arrested. Not just arrested, John was hated by the new wife Herodias. She felt threatened. By John. No, it seemed to her the only way to secure her marriage that her, is that her marriage certificate is being written in the blood of John. Because here's the thing, even though her new husband, Herod, has imprisoned John, he refused to kill him. No, in fact, he feared John, he protected John. He was also drawn to the truth spoken by John. We are told in verse 20, look at it. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled. Yet he liked to listen to John. What was puzzling for Herod? I think it would not be the teaching of John. For the prophet was very clear, repent. But I think what was puzzling to Herod was really his need to respond to truth. His need to respond to truth. The truth of the gospel is not complicated, but the need to respond to truth gets complicated because we are complicated 
people. We know from our own experience, I know it from mine, and you probably too, how we have dividing desires and conflicting wills. If the gospel is true, the gospel says that we need to repent of our sins and trust in Jesus to be saved from God's wrath. If the gospel is true, then logically we will respond to it all the time. And Jesus' words, we will respond to it all the time. But we know that humans, we often have conflicting desires that is tying us tightly and we find a struggle to acknowledge and respond to God's truth. Now as we recall again the parable of the sower, between the hard path and the good soil are the rocky places and the thorny grounds. Now the truth is attractive, but competitions like troubles and persecutions and worries in life, deceitfulness of wealth, desires for things, can choke the words of truth out of us. From the account, it didn't seem that Herod really hated John. But he was totally undecided what to do with the truth. Because on one hand, he liked listening to John. On the other, he doesn't want to respond to truth. And so, Herodias comes in to force Herod's decision. For a deep hatred has found an opportunity. And this is the opportunity. Herod Antipas decide to celebrate his birthday, he's going to have a great birthday party and great big birthday cake. He's invited the important people, the powerful people to come and see his greatness. And there was a dance. Herodias had sent his daughter to do a dance for everyone. According to Josephus, the daughter's name was Salome. So Salome came out and danced with such lure that everyone was captivated by her. Everyone's eyes were on her and they were so attracted to her. And at the peak of that birthday celebration, the only way for Herod to top it up is to stand up and he says this, Salome, come here. Everyone turns and look at Herod and says, ask from me anything and I'll give it to you. Such a generous king. Well, what an opportunity for Salome as well. What would she ask for? If you are Salome, what will you ask for? Ask for the newest smartwatch. Perhaps ask for a palace or a garden to be built in my name so that I can invite all my friends and they can see how great I am. In fact, have a nice statue of myself in the garden. That would be great. Or perhaps get me involved in the, the Roman fashion chains and I always get the nicest dress. What would you ask for if you are Salome? This is what happened. She, she, she turns around and she said to Herod, um, let me, let me ask mom as she ran off. And for a moment, the men were laughing and said, ah, oh, such a cute little girl. They're laughing and humorous and, uh, and just enjoying it. And she went in just for a short while. And she came back and she said this, I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist on a platter. You can imagine the pin drop. Herod's face changed from that tipsy laughter to an utter shock. Even in his drunkenness, he will know that he has been tricked. 
This was the plot all along. But what was he to do? To refuse her request and to be seen as a weakling? No, to risk his authority over the, the, the powerful people around. Perhaps some of them are lusting after his own seat. What would he do? At this point, he was unsure what to do with the truth. He would not be able and he did not risk anything. He would not destabilize himself to save the man he likes to listen. And he gave the immediate instruction, take his head. And he was chopped off, given to the girl, given to her mom. And as John's account reaches here, verse 29 tells us, John's disciples, braving the danger, went to retrieve his headless body, laid in a tomb. And when we read that, Mark ends John's account and we are brought back to the 12 apostles who verse 30, they have returned from the mission training, had gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and thought. By the way, John's event has passed long ago, but it was just put right in here, sandwiched between their going out and coming here. Now, dear friends, as we draw this chapter to a close, we are meant to recognize this. We are meant to recognize the likes of Herodias and Herod continue to be true in our time and across history. I want you to reflect with me just for a moment. Just uh, reflect with me. Um, take all your, your world knowledge uh, into good use. Just reflect with me if this is true. There are people in our world who feel so threatened by the gospel of Jesus that their solution would not to have a debate or communicate about logic or truth. Their way to deal with the threat is to silence the messengers. Remember the man that we uh, talked about earlier on, Romulo? There are countless of them. You know, there are countless of martyrs like John the Baptist or Romulo, all through generation we hear Endless persecution of Christians, perhaps by the Boko Haram, or the murder of a 60-year-old pastor in Northeastern Democratic Republic of Congo two weeks back, or another 10 Christian men, they were murdered in the marketplace at Burkina Faso three weeks ago, and, and, and the list goes on if you just click into the websites of praying for Christians. You see them being refreshed way too often. Or perhaps in a less physical way, we read in some countries where the hatred of Christianity is clearly seen during public debates such as legalizing same-sex marriage or the push to remove religious education in schools. Or perhaps in our own experience, yours and mine, perhaps at home, at work or with friends, we're speaking of Jesus and the need to repent would strain relationships, may exclude you from inheritance, there may be mispromotion opportunities, or even potential marriage partners. They're going to cost. It costs when you proclaim and when I proclaim Jesus. Jesus' disciples, as pointed out in Mark 6, they need to understand the cost of following Jesus and because this is written for us, the same goes to those who follow him today. Now, we should be very thankful in Singapore we have religious harmony, uh, but that's not the norm in our world. And we shouldn't take the assumption that it will always be that 
in your Christian life and mine. Because you may not always be in Singapore or things can change. And meanwhile, those, there'll be those who sit on a fence like Herod Antipas. No, they will enjoy listening to God's word and truth. But without grabbing hold of God's truth as their own, there'll come a time where persecution or temptations will bring them away. Pressures from fiery spouse, from angry mobs, from various threats to theirs or your security or my security. No, we'll soon witness the deja vu because Pilate will come in and knowing Jesus to be innocent will still allow him to be put to death because the pressure of the world is too great. No, there'll be some who will come to church who will for a moment be drawn to truths but at some crossroad may give it up if they did not grab hold of this truth as their own. I pray that this doesn't happen amongst us. I pray that it doesn't happen to me or to you. But Jesus' warning is real. There will be those who would. Now, after looking at Mark 5, seeing the divine authority that Jesus has, natural bows down, spiritual bows down, physical bows down, death and life, acknowledge Jesus. We come to chapter 6 in this meantime, where we are called to follow Jesus and brave the storm. When we obey his word, there will be cause, there will be rejection. The question for us that is left, for today is this, will we still be willing to follow Jesus and obey his commands for us when trouble comes? Will we proclaim the good news of salvation through Jesus and the repentance of sins? Or will we give half-baked gospel message that neither threatens nor safe? There will be more lessons to come. Because Jesus has more to teach us. But today, the lesson is this. How will we respond to him? Will we grab the truth as our own? Or will we sit at a fence and look at it? Let's pray. Oh dear Heavenly Father, we are in Mark 6 today. It's a sobering chapter, quite different from the earlier chapters because we hear the rejection of the gospel, of the Messiah, of the apostles, of the prophets. It's a reminder for us readers that rejection is real. But you didn't tell us this until you have already given us in March of the 5, that we have a Lord who has authority over everything. So today, as we meditate on Mark chapter 6, we pray God that you will help us, help us to reflect on our Christian faith and help us to trust in Jesus more, knowing that by our own way, we can never get to heaven, but in Jesus, the kingdom of heaven is given to us. So we pray God that you help us 
in this coming week as we go through challenges and difficulties. Dear God, you help us to remember those who are fearful, those who are worried, and that we can pray for ourselves and for them that we may come to trust in Jesus, our Saviour. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at busypc.sg.